Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. Our guest this month is Emma Hayes, the manager of Chelsea Women. She told Simon Austin about the club's quest for a quadruple this season, her leadership style, and whether or not she'll manage in the men's game one day. Over to Simon. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No problem. No problem. Brilliant. Um, you know, you're at an incredible point in the season. Um, you've got the second leg of the Champions League semi coming up, two games to go in the league. What's it like to be in the midst of that? Um, I think you just take one game at a time. You know, you hear that ridiculous cliche in football, but it is true because, you know, the efforts that go into preparing for each game uh, on the pitch, off the pitch, is so monumental that you can't get too far ahead because pulling together everything to get the performance right for the for the for any particular game requires like maximum concentration on that and that's what I've learned over the years you have to uh, stay present in this job to perform and when you've got so many games back to back you don't have a lot of time you don't have as much time to reflect perhaps as we would like but at the same time if you have a loss it's good because it means you've got the opportunity to, to to rectify that quite quickly without out too much thinking time. Yeah, can that be good in a way to not overthink things in, yeah. in the moment, like you say? Yes, except freshness, you know, going into games. Like for us, we played Man City last week and Bayern Munich. It might be that the, the Man City game was an exhausting game for the mind. And so the legs might be fresh come Sunday, but the brain is tired and you need the brain to play, to solve, to make decisions. And I think on one level, winning and having back-to-back games gives you momentum. I think the other is the recognition that you, 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 have, to, you have to give the team and staff the right amount of recovery to be able to sustain the poor performance. But I think it gets easier if you're a team that's used to competing all the time. And I think our schedule this side of Christmas has been a game every three or four days. So your bodies, your minds adapt to it. I think at this stage of the season, it's important to know that anything you do has nothing to do with what you do this week. It's got to do with everything you've done leading up to this point. And I think someone coined the phrase, didn't they? Mentality monsters. Um, yeah. And that you find a way to get the result. Yeah. How do you think that is? Um, I think that comes from years of cultivating that in-house. Um, I think it's come from plenty of setbacks, plenty of disappointments, plenty of nearly moments, then followed by winning a title of such and then doing it again and then doing it again. I think the drive and the determination to win hasn't... Uh, diminished in my time here I think the thirst and the hunger to win increases season on season but that's because winning is doesn't get tiring I think the most tiring element of being in that position is that you become even more conscious that to win you can't have many off moments so you have to stay on top of yourself and everybody has to take responsibility for themselves as well to make sure there's not peaks and troughs you have to be consistent in performance that's what contributes to winning 
And I know you won the quadruple in, I think it was 2007, wasn't it, when you were at Arsenal? Is it a very different game now than it was then and the level of competition? Well, you could say yes, except that final against Umia was, you know, David Goliath's story. I mean, they had a team that was full of full-time professionals and we had amateurs. So the gulf between Arsenal and Umia at the time was sizable. Maybe domestically for Arsenal, it was a bigger gap than it is now. And I think there is one probably similarity in as much as it took them eight seven, eight, nine years to get to that point, much as it's done for us. And I think once you get to these latter stages on a regular basis, you have the experience of knowing what it's like and, and managing those moments. So you hope that experience counts, but you cannot take that for granted. It's not a, a shoo-in or a given just because you're more experienced that you will make it. Uh, what it does guarantee, I think, with experience is that you know how to stay in the game uh, better than you do when maybe you're you're going for it the first time and you you're almost a little naive with it. Mm. I think that's what changes with with you know years of doing it. I don't know. Watching the game against Man City it was a bit of a who's who, really, when you look yeah. at the players on each team. But then you have to remember, you know, it, England is behind the other countries, isn't it, in terms of European football and the success, you know, just looking at the list of winners of that competition. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason for that. I think the domestic league had to improve here and professionalise. Then that took some years for those professional habits to filter into some European success. And I think any British team now can compete at the latter stages comfortably in the Champions League because of all of that work. And as I've always said, it's a lot easier if you say Wolfsburg, you're always in the semi-finals, maybe the finals. You just you're used to that. You 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 appreciate what that involves. And it's not just like managing the game and the tactics. You have to manage emotions, you have to manage the moments. That, that come with being with that and it's always easier when you've experienced it multiple times yeah yeah definitely um and I was just going to go back actually to the start of your journey really if that's all right and sort of growing up first of all I was reading about some interesting experiences there like I think you've said your dad being self-employed had a big yeah. influence on you and your style um can you just talk about that a bit yeah, I mean, I grew up in a household where my dad would come home at the end of the week and the money he put on the table, that was the money we had to live on. And um, he never had an employer. He was, he was self-employed his whole life. So if he didn't have a good week, it wouldn't be a lot of money and we had to manage that. And then if it was a good week, he still wouldn't give us a lot. My dad was always really tight. And I was, I'll say that because... I have so many memories, even go, getting getting a, a, a place to go to university. And my dad was like, I'm not paying for you to go to university. You have to go and earn it. Mm-hmm. And I remember having to do that. I had to get jobs to, to go and pay for my university education. And that's probably the thing that was instilled in me the most was that I have to earn it myself. But at the same time, I was around, you know, he's creative uh mind regarding the businesses he would create he had the ticket businesses he had currency business he had uh, video shops he bought bakeries like my dad was very entrepreneurial and always 
innovative. He always would be the person that would be seeking a new idea. I remember once when he talked about having tuk-tuks around London, selling ice cream out the back and tuk-tuks, you know, people didn't even know what a tuk-tuk was. And within like five years, I remember seeing the little Piaggio mini, you know, one man band businesses running around London. And that was the sort of thing my dad would always be interested in. It, it, it want to find lots of little different businesses and, um yeah be creative with them to be honest and I think I think I've been heavily even I'm I am everybody says I'm like my dad yeah it's really interesting so, so he's not a guy who's doing things by committee then or going mm. in and hosting for a week because he's guaranteed wage you know no way no it was what he earned was what he was bringing home and uh you know I've got three two sisters and we grew up in, you know, a very matriarchal household. You know, my mum was very dominant, but always, she would always say the same to me in terms of be happy, to choose what you want to do in life. I was never put under pressure. Um, I was always encouraged to play. That always stands out in my mind. I spent a childhood playing football in the flats the whole time. I felt very independent in my choices, whatever I did. I never had it rammed down my throat, pick this, do that. And I, you know, had the jobs from 13. We all had to have Saturday jobs. I remember not allowed to be uh, be very idle a lot. If we were laying around, it was like, get up, you've got to do your chores or you've got to go to work, earn some money. And I think that's just been instilled in me from, from an early age and, and of course, all the disappointments and uh, that come with those experiences, and sometimes doing the jobs I didn't want to do, I didn't really want to work at a ha- in a hairdresser's as a teenager. They give me my pocket money, or you know, so so things like that. I I, I think is the, probably the big thing that's come from my childhood. Yeah, a lot really of love and a lot of joy. Like come from yeah. a really stable background. My parents are still together, and. Um, like I said, I was encouraged to follow my dreams, whatever they were. And did that inform your decision then to go to America at the start of your coaching journey? Well, I went to university to do European studies, Spanish and sociology, and I really hoped to end a career in diplomacy somewhere. I really loved strategy and I really loved diplomacy. Um, and I came back to London to work for Camden Sports Development uh, working with the Pakistani Bangladeshi communities in in West Houston, and it was all about putting on football projects to prevent conflict, to build relations, and I enjoyed that. But I just wanted to. I just I was young. I wanted to get away. I wanted to do something else, and I got the offer to go and coach in America, and I just I didn't hesitate. I just took it, thinking. Listen, it could be a great life experience. I didn't necessarily think it would be the career I ended up in. Yeah, and was the game quite a bit ahead there than yeah. it was in England at the time? Oh, yeah, massively. It was like going from a time warp into uh modern era. I just remember immediately thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get so many opportunities here. Mm. And that built my confidence. And as a result of that confidence... I experimented a lot. I coached different teams, different age groups. I got hired. I got fired. I did multiple jobs within jobs. 
I used to have, I used to work seven days a week. I used to be driving the breadth and depth of Long Island and New York to go and coach teams. And I think I, I, you know, I had to look after myself, you know, I was there alone. And I think that again, provided another example of, you know, the dedication thing that you need in this job. I'm, I never skipped a step. I really didn't. I made sure I did every job, even while I was leading teams. I, where I learned the analysis, whether I worked in the community camps, whether I, whatever it, I was doing, and still, um, I think that's really helped me along the way. Yeah, and obviously at quite a young age as well. And I think, again, I read a story about you having to make a decision to drop a star player. Um, yeah. Was that a Long Island? Yeah, that was in Long Island. I mean... Making that decision at 25, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I had to make a decision. And that was probably my first experience of putting in place something objective. Albeit it was teammates' opinions of the, the starting 11. But getting that player to actually look at a list and say, oh, hang on a minute, my teammates are not picking me, helped me. Right. And I made it anonymous because it's not, you know, it's so important not to make things personal when you're talking about what you want the players to do. But that was a really big moment for me because I had to make a decision about something without a personal, without any personal preference. I was doing what was best for the team. It's tough to do that when you're a young coach. You know, so often in younger coaching, you want to be popular, you you want to do the right things, but... To win, you you have to accept that you can be fair, but you definitely can't be equal in anything you're doing. And I think I was exposed to more experiences than, say, the British female coaches because I was coaching so many teams. It wasn't like, you know, coaches coming through here on the pathway. Some might have been England youth coaches, some not at all. And I think because I was coaching under 10s, under 12s, semi-pro team, regional teams, you know, I was doing so much. I, I developed, um, I think, my skill set at an earlier age to cope with the job. I guess there could be a bit of a tendency as well if you're a young coach to maybe over-assert your authority because you're yeah. a bit tense, so you become too kind of dominant and to overcompensate. Yeah, I, th- I think you spend time as a younger coach, I think, just second-guessing all the time if you're making the right decisions because you know truth be told you never really know you know the the result doesn't necessarily validate whether what you're doing is right or wrong it just means you won a game and I think that in coaching far too much emphasis goes on the winning coach in as much as it does the losing coach because you need a tremendous amount of luck to 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 be to be in one of those camps, you know, and sometimes some jobs you have them, sometimes everything goes for you and sometimes they don't. I think I've learned over the years that just not just don't get too wrapped up in it. Take one moment at a time and try to make informed decisions with like calm emotions. And that takes a lot of work and it's never, you never get it right. But I think it's uh, something that, comes I've probably I don't know how many games I've coached in my career but I would go as far to say it'd be close to a thousand so it's a lot of football matches yeah yeah I've never tracked my career but it'll be a lot of football matches 
and there's no substitute for actually doing it then you know you can read as many books as you want but doing it is the is the educator oh yeah without doubt you know you get you get you know and it happens from season to season you you know and your reflections about well, what's the best way to do this can I change that uh, but you, whatever happens, you have to. It has to be underpinned by really strong foundations. Those foundations, your principles of play, your training methodology, they've got to be really, really solid. And that's what takes a long time to develop. How would you describe your playing philosophy at Chelsea now? Um, well, I think I would describe it as you know a game that's centered around the three most important moments attend attacking defending and transition uh with an emphasis with a huge emphasis on its restarts and they are probably the four foundations that uh, a training methodology is then developed uh side by side with a you know Vahen periodization Right. Yeah, interesting. I was going to ask about Raymond, actually. Has he been a big influence on you? Uh, yeah, I mean, Ray- Raymond is hands down one of the best coach educators in the world. And I've learned significantly from Raymond about how crap I am. And that uh, if I want to become a top coach, the level of learning, the level of application of that learning takes thousands of hours. And that uh, the more I have learned how to coach, the more it is centered around a theoretical underpinning and the developing or having a conscious coaching style. You have to uh, be so clear uh, what it is you are trying to do. Um, and I don't just mean in terms of like, I want my team to score goals or I want my team to prevent goals. I think it has to go, your whole environment has to be uh, completely clear from top down. The, the, the language you use is universal, that everybody's speaking it, that the comms and the interactions between each other are uh, critical because ultimately we have to get one message to the players and the, the players are expected to perform in an environment where they're listened to but um the expectation in in terms of the way the team plays and how we expect you to 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 perform every day to behave every day is is the underpinning i don't want to call it a culture you those foundations are are what i think allow you to build year on year with absolute clarity and as i said i I use a lot of objective resourcing around me so that we don't become too subjective about coaching, but that whether I am coaching a session or someone else is coaching, we are all speaking the same way in terms of our style of play and terms of our principles of play. Like that for me is absolutely critical. We can't, the miscommunications are what rip teams apart. We actually had Eddie Jones on the podcast um, and he brought Raymond into the camp and he spoke very highly of him. Again, he said he's an abrasive character, but he'd really helped his team and helped him. So uh, that tallies with what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Listen, anybody that, that, that anybody that provokes the button in us, we have to ask ourselves that question. 
are we in charge of our conscious thinking or are we easily triggered as humans? And Raymond knows how to trigger our unconscious thinking, our amygdala, our emotional center. That's what he does extremely well. So when he says something provocative that most people call him an arsehole for, all I keep thinking is the same thing, which is how many times as a coach are we faced with having our own emotional centers triggered daily, whether it's hearing something we don't like, whether it's getting the response from a player we don't agree with. You, know, you have to stay in a place constantly where you're reflecting on your emotions and how you manage that to produce an environment that is constantly analyzing in a reflective way, but also that that analysis is so intrinsically linked to your whole identity. Um, and for me, that clarity doesn't happen easily. That comes over years. It might come with having my staff with me for a while and, and then having the ability to constantly look in at yourself and think about how, what you have to do to be able to get your team and the people around you to in the position that, that, that the team needs. Would you encourage your players to challenge you as well? Oh, my gosh, they challenge me nonstop. Yeah. Um, yeah, nonstop, whether it's why are we doing this to do you think that's the right idea to what do we do if this happens, whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's crucial to involve them in that process. You've got to develop thinkers, um, decision makers, but more importantly for them to do it under duress. Do it when it matters most, when the heart's pounding out of the chest and you've got to be able to stay ice in the head uh, to deliver the performance. And to be fair, my team have, have done a good job of that over the years. But I think in the way that we train here, we consciously, from my perspective, we do things throughout training that is challenging there. This is an important muscle an undertrained muscle in football and one that the more you provoke it, the more you challenge it, uh, the more responses you'll get from it, bet for better or worse. Is that sort of creating scenarios in training then that they have to respond to? Yeah, definitely. Um, whether that's you're leaving a team underloaded or overloaded numbers-wise, whether you're training as a bad ref whether you are training I you know training situations where you know the training is almost going to be harder than the game so that by the time the game comes around if you are 10 players defending against 11 or nine players defending and you're ready for whatever the opponent throws at you sometimes pulling the rug in terms of changing things here and there times situation that for me you have to have um a positive discomfort for performance. You know, athletes get really comfortable. Uh, you know, they get into the rhythm of the season, they get their routines, they come in, and all of a sudden they're on autopilot. And before you know it, you're losing games. Mm -hmm. the death. And then the second part of that is, is performing consistently because the danger when you're going into games, when you think, this one's easy. You know, the game's already lost in here before it's began that, that looking for those telltale signs and stimulating even 
harder responses in those weeks, I think, are crucial to make sure that that players don't uh, don't rest comfortably. It's critical. And it's very interesting what you're saying about getting objectivity in your decision making. Um, was that like through video and data, or was there more than that? All of it: video, data, monitoring actions in training. We monitor measurables that we have our own in-house that we've developed that are linked to our playing style. So that we're in a position, whatever we're doing, that we're not just doing it for performance, but we're doing it to keep players on the pitch. I'll know whether a player has had 25 shots on their right foot in training versus 16. And is that a bigger spike than three days ago? And those things are important because, you, first of all, you've got to train and play with your best players. And you've got to keep them on the pitch. The second part of that is, is we analyse training all the time and show the players the analysis of training. Because for me, if you want constant performance, then you have to be in a position to show the players how valuable training really is. And then I think it's important to go in the training week where people are not thinking about, am I starting or not? But they are got their mind on training. That's about it. Staying present instead of egotistical do you have dedicated data science as well our gps data is linked to our football actions uh and then our quantitative data which will have multiple references in and around that we don't separate them they're not islands they are one thing and um it's totally irrelevant to me how much distance a player has run what matters is that whatever that data is, what was the state of the game? What was her role in the game? What was um, the expectation? Where was the game being played? Instead of, oh, you know, she only did this much high-speed running. I might say, yeah, I know, but the ball didn't go down that side of the pitch. Just totally irrelevant. You've got to make it contextual and you need football people doing that, not, not just sports scientists. It's absolutely cru- crucial that we talk about it as football science, not data or sports. No, it's football science. Much as I don't believe in strength and conditioning, we have, you know, what, what the coach is the conditioning coach. It's my job to condition the players. It might be that, that, that somebody's job down there is to prep the players in their movements ready for the football conditioning. And when you say you don't believe in strength and conditioning, do you mean gym work? I just mean in terms of a title. Right, okay. What sort of job title is that? Strength and conditioning. That's my job. My job is to condition the player. Is 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 it the job of... Uh, and besides, like, if we're playing, I don't know, whatever you're doing in training and players are going up against an opponent, aren't they developing strength? So, where the, so what is the job then of those people off the pitch and are those traditional names that we've just grabbed are they even appropriate i challenge that all the time like like i said i I think i completely appreciate we deliver football science or individual and team data because that's what it is and then you know the 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 movement pieces that uh, are linked to you know uh basic actions to you know the basic actions that a player will do before they go on the pitch the football action you know, follows that in terms of what they'll do with the ball. And then 
the interaction between the player, the ball, and then their teammates is is the third part to it. So at the heart of it, my job, I'm in charge of everything. And I've got to make sure that we don't have one veering off in one direction and saying, oh, well, I'm I'm the expert of this area. Therefore, I'm solely responsible for that. Of course, their expertise is, is what's required, but it has to do, it has, has to always relate to your language, your culture, your context, so that we don't do things like train sports science terms, like, oh, I don't know, we're going to go and do some anaerobic running. Who understands what that is? We're football people. Is that, is that, is that a repeated sprint? We can talk like that. Or is it, um, is it a short sprint, you know? And if we're talking about, you know, like so I said, so for me, I, we challenge in our environment to, to taking non-contextual words in all fields and we put them into football language yeah. everywhere. Yeah, because you do hear of that quite a lot where people are operating in silos at clubs. So you have very good data science, but they're in a room and they never... Oh, talk- yeah, islands. We call them islands here. And we don't operate in islands. Operating islands is where you are afraid. It means you, you you're not open, and you've got you've got to be in a position where you're the technical staff, the medical team, the performance, all of those things are together, and that we're speaking one language. Like even the planning of sessions, the planning of the warm ups must mirror what we're about to do. The planning of the prehab has to mirror the type of actions the warm-up is going to, to do, et cetera, et cetera. The analysis of the session must fit with exactly what the technical team are doing based on the upcoming game. Those that are monitoring the actions within the session and monitoring the things that I always say really matter. Because it's not, it's not about recording everything. What's, what's going to matter to winning? And that's, for me, that's subjective that's what, what we consider to be the most important things. You know, like I said, that's based on how we want to do things or how we want to play. Yeah. And your leadership style seems very authentic looking in. It seems like you're always yourself and that <laughs> resonates with people, I think. Is, is that true, would you say? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I, I am. What you see is what you get. There's no, um, I'm genuine. I, I, I safely say that. I think... What I'm learning more and more about leading is that it's, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. Like it really is. You can give it everything and do your best. But sometimes it never feels enough and you have to accept that. You can't make people happy. So you can't, so don't try. Just be yourself. Make sure you're always given, you know, and you can't always do that either. Like just give clear communications um, as often as possible. And that's where you avoid probably the trouble spots that come with leading, which is, I think it's a generation that wants to be heard more. And it's a generation that wants to be, wants even uh, more affirmation or confirmation or communications than ever. So you have to be conscious of that. They also want it done in different ways. So it's like not traditional, straight up face-to-face conversations the keyboard warrior crew is 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 very evident in this generation of players. And I think the acceptance that more often than not, we always get it wrong. <laughs> like coaches sort of create this picture of themselves that we're, you know, we're in control. We're, oh no, this is this is a job of daily 
battles between have I got that right today? What do we need to do better to improve it there? Who do I need to speak to next? How's the mood and the feeling? It could be fine one day and off the next. And that can be due to a number of different things. Like it isn't straight. But I think acceptance of that in coaching is so crucial. Otherwise, you, you'll be fulfilled and fueled with self-doubt. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. But we had uh, Dave Redding on from the FA and he said he didn't like this phenomenon of the unicorn coach who's all powerful, knows everything. Oh, yeah. It's a bit dishonest if you pretend you yeah. do, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's... Um, I understand that our players mirror us and I think that's important. Um, but we are not responsible for everything. You know, we play our part in it. We're humans. We get it wrong too. We don't always get it right. I, I think I've acknowledged more and more that when to take a step back, when to let my other staff deal with certain situations. They might deal with some players better than I will. Yeah. Um, and vice versa. And that, I think, the more I've coached, the more I realise, like, I'm, I've never been one to be mm, protective about those things. I'm always about the team. I'm a really big team player. Yeah. And I think whatever it takes to get us there, whoever decides, then let's do let's do that. And um, when you were linked with the AFC Wimbledon job earlier yeah. in the year, uh, were you offended by that? It seemed like it had struck a nerve with you. I, I, I worked with some unbelievable athletes. I think what I'd say on this, I'm not surprised of the headlines in the press because actually, if you listen to my words, I never said anything about AFC Wimbledon. I said it's not a step down coaching women. And I was curious to see what the headline would be. So when the headline wrote, oh, Emma Hayes is offended, I thought, classic. Classic, another classic situation to make sure you put a woman in their place by insinuating I'm insulting the men's game, which I never did. I just defended my own game. And there's a difference because... AFC Wimbledon are our neighbours. They are, we play in their old stadium. Like, no, absolutely no issues whatsoever with AFC Wimbledon or being linked to the job. I just felt it was important to speak highly of a group of women who are giving me their heart and soul and that are running through brick walls for the football club. That I thought it was more important to talk about them than it was to talk about something that was pitted against us and I don't view it like that and I don't and am I disappointed by the headlines no I'm just not surprised it doesn't bother me uh, I just know that I'm proud of the group of people I represent and I felt it was important to shout that loudly and also just remind people that you know this whole notion that women are from Venus men are from Mars well I'm sure we are in some ways in our personalities but I don't know why the world thinks we play two different sports. It's just bonkers to me to think we are in a profession where we don't have any diversity. Yeah. That part is bonkers. Yeah. In this yeah. day and age, you could cite a million professions now and say, well, do men work with women? I don't know, whatever it might be. You would. I'd be interested to know which professions still exist which are so 
homogenous. Yeah. But I'm not sure they exist. No. No, I've been thinking about it quite a bit before this interview. And um, I honestly can't think of any reason, if you wanted to, why you couldn't manage at a high level with male players. Because the, the skills are the same, aren't they? The leadership skills, the management, yeah. the holistic. You know, like, like I said, I think when the conversation comes up about AFC, the realities are it's good that these conversations are still normalised so that when a woman steps into the men's game, it will be something that's just like, oh, right, we've spoke about this enough times. I think it will be a big jump for someone when that happens. What I do know is that how you win a football match, regardless of the gender, Mm -hmm. is exactly the same thing. And the type of work you do doesn't change just because I'm coaching women. Like, I don't say, oh, this is the women's game. We prepare them differently than a men's team. But they're prepared exactly the same way. Of course, they're different players. They're different. It's a different league. It's probably a different speed. But the rest of it's all the same. And I think for whatever reason, it comes from education and an unconscious bias that everybody's grown up not really acknowledging. No, acknowledging is the wrong word. They just just know men, men's football and men in football. So our brains take a while to compute that actually it's a bit odd, really, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. Totally. Is that an ambition of yours or do you just sort of take things as they come? And- I told you I never thought I'd end up in coaching. Right. So that's the first thing. I feel fulfilled. So I don't feel the pressure of having to, I need to do this next. I've learned over the years that whenever you start to think about being somewhere else, it's already good night. And I I think my life goals were, uh, had nothing to do with football. So do I know what's next for me in my life? No, I will probably be involved with currency because I have a currency business. Okay. I'll probably be involved with that. Do I think I'll be coaching football beyond this job? I don't know. I know myself well enough. I don't I don't sit there with my little one-year, three-year, five-year plan. It's not who I am. I'm very much like very present in my job to perform. And when this is no longer my job, I'll reflect on what will be next for me. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Emma. And best of luck for the rest of the season. You're welcome. See you later. Take care. Brilliant. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.